0: me in prayer. God of many languages, God of many different people, God of humanity, we come before you, hearing our own voices in our own ways, in our own tongues. And we ask that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, We have just shared two bookends from Scripture. At least that's how they're considered in the Christian tradition. The first one being the story of the Tower of Babel, or Babel. The story in which we have an origin story about how and why we speak different languages. You can also read a lot of other things in that story about what it means when we let technology or our own building of structures get away from us and how God intervenes. And then we hear the story just now from the day of Pentecost, one that we normally only hear on that day, sometimes with various languages among us, when people could actually understand one another despite their diverse languages, despite their diverse origins. It is a sort of putting together. And theologically, we think of these as complementary parts, the ways we got separated and the power of the Spirit to bring us back together seems appropriate that we should have these passages on the Sunday before Thanksgiving as we gather together in what is America's first multicultural interfaith holiday, as we prepare to gather at our tables and offer a table downstairs. The passages had me wondering about what it's like, what it might have been like, when ancient prehistoric people first encountered difference in one another. I wonder if... When they noticed the differences that you and I still all notice, so whether it was merely the ways they spoke or the words they spoke, or their skin color or hair color or their hair patterns or the color and shape of their eyes, whatever it was they noticed, how did people respond? I wonder if it's some sort of cartoonish thing that we think of prehistoric people sort of sniffing and poking at each other and trying things out or like our primate cousins might do or if they ran in fear. We still do it, this noticing of difference, although we might not be so blatant. There's a little tape that goes on in our head when we encounter difference. You and I do this all the time when we're out in traffic or on public transportation or perhaps when we're in the airport and doing people watching. You may notice people of different cultural backgrounds, women wearing hijabs or Women wearing saris, or Sikh men with their turbans, or people from Africa in their kente cloth. Or it may not even be that exotic or different. It may just be, why are they wearing that? Do they actually think that makes them look good? Or really, does that hairstyle fit them? Or why is he wearing so much gray hair on his face? We pay attention important to pay attention to what the difference arouses in us and why. To be a little self-reflective. And is it something that God wants us to see and pay attention to? Because I often think the way we respond to difference is at the very root of the prejudices we all hold. I wonder, do we recoil in fear or do we lean in in curiosity? And more importantly, do we look for the humanity in one another, the desire that we all have to be loved, the power that we all have to give love, the power we have to create, to generate ideas and innovations and inventions to adapt to the world as we know it, or actually the power to procreate, to bring forth life and to nurture that life among us. This is something we all share. Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, former chief rabbi of the UK, said in his book, The Dignity of Difference, that a primordial instinct going back to humanity's tribal past makes us see difference as a threat. And that instinct is massively dysfunctional in an age in which our several destinies are interlinked. Rabbi Sachs was speaking to the differences of religion and how we deal with them in a modern or even postmodern era. Now, I couldn't remember if I've shared these experiences with you before or not, but here goes. My own experience growing up in this very insulated Midwestern, largely white town in, was that our family hosted foreign exchange students. Some of you may know the American Field Service, which was formed after World War II as a way for people to understand each other better, to have links cross-culturally and around the world. And through those encounters, I learned about different cultures right in my own home, day after day after day. We had a Swedish foreign exchange student who had the lilting patterns of his language and who would sit for hours in front of American television sitcoms just to soak up the cultural information. He would wear clogs, which at the time was a little new, that made him two inches taller. And he made me wonder, as my mother prepared a particularly typical Swedish Christmas Eve for us, how you could ever like something like lutefisk, the bitter, gelatinous, lyd fish that people eat in Scandinavia. Later, we had a Brazilian student who actually visited us here this summer in worship. And he had this intense love of surfing from his coastal town in Rio de Janeiro State, and as is endemic to most Brazilians, he loved soccer. He also had this way of life balance that seemed different than the way that we often did it. He, he seemed to know how to savor and enjoy life and music and children and families in a way that was in balance with his pursuit of work. And later when we got to visit him, I learned about the joys of national dishes like feijoada or the churrasqueria, the Brazilian barbecue. Now, I don't know if it was because my parents made it safe and put this in our own home. One of the things they ask in American field service, would you be comfortable having this person near home go into any closet that you have? Or was it because they showed a natural curiosity themselves? Or maybe it was because I, as a queer child growing up in this insulated, largely homogeneous Midwestern town, felt different than the norm, and so I was intensely interested about difference. But for whatever reason, it caused me to want to lean into difference. Later, my family would take its first trip outside this country, and the first city I ever visited was on a Holy Land trip and was in Cairo, Egypt, where at age 13 I walked through the city of dead, this open cemetery, and saw open sewers and children living in poverty, which opened me up to the way that cultures are different around the world and the effects, that poverty and lack of e- economic resources can have on the rest of the world. I was also grateful that in college, some of my closest friends were from completely different cultural backgrounds, not necessarily because I sought them out, but because they lived on the same floor, the same hallway, Chinese-American, Jewish-American, African-American. Now. I say all this because it's where I come from. Each of you knows where you come from. And I think in a place like Brookline, in a place like the United Parish, most of us want to lean in to diversity, to ask questions, to be curious, and to explore each other's differences. Our gathering team had that in mind as they asked us to bring our favorite family dishes to our potluck today. And most of us are aware that things like culture and race are sociological constructs. And I have to just say up front that in these areas, I do not consider myself an expert, but I rather consider myself a student who's trying to do this ongoing coursework in what this means. And I invite us all to approach these issues with humility and with openness. Some of you may remember 15 years ago when PBS aired a documentary called Race, The Power of an Illusion, in which they explore that our most common assumptions about race are simply wrong. There is no compelling biological explanation for race. Instead, they explore how race are the ways that people in power have shaped our perceptions about our differences and have relegated people to different categories and different strata and even different parts of the world. The consequences of racism are actually very real, as we all know. Constructive construct of race has guided our laws, our public policy, our medical reports, our public health, police enforcement, airport security, and all sorts of other institutional authorities. It has done, like the Tower of Babel, it has only served to create greater separation, greater economic disparity. And while the Tower of Babel may be primarily about the reality of language, I extend it here to the way we think about culture and the way we view differences in one another. In that story, it's seen as a curse, and perhaps it is from God. Perhaps it's a way of showing our own sin in the ways we, we, we take difference to a different level, that we use it to separate us instead of being curious and drawing us together. I bring this up because recently at our leadership retreat, this was brought up to me more forcefully about the work that we need to do in United Parish around this issue. And I believe that we have an amazing opportunity living in Brookline. You may note the high school boasts that it has over 69 countries represented and 44 languages spoken in the high school. I have colleagues around the country who would love to have that kind of demographic diversity to work with as a church. It is true that Brookline is about 72% people from European ancestry, and we have various diversity in the 28% that remain in that demographic. One of the things I'm learning is that a town that has a reputation for being diverse, being accepting, progressive, and tolerant, can easily gloss over the fact that there is still plenty of racism in this place. You may know the way this was dealt in Boston Magazine two years ago, asking, does Brookline have a problem with black people? And the concerns that have existed in our police and fire departments here. And I believe that you and I, in this setting, have an opportunity to be a counterweight to these kinds of problems, not only here in Brookline, but in the wider world. In fact. I believe the story of Pentecost makes it our call, that we must do this. Now, in our church, like the people of Pentecost, we often have a broad representation. On any given Sunday, we can have people whose origins are from China, Japan, Korea, India, Russia, Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria, Zambia, to mention just a few of them. And we also have people from other parts of the country, from California, Ohio, New York, Texas, Florida, Missouri, Tennessee, Minnesota, Colorado, and much more. And on Sunday morning, we do a pretty good job of this welcome. But in our leadership, as we saw vigorously on display the last weekend in September, we are largely from European ancestry, or as is often said in a race construct, white, and we are a majority female, In our leadership. Now, there are many of us in this congregation, myself among them, who believe that there is a more faithful way forward. That embracing and living out our full ethnic and gender diversity, especially given the demographics of the town in which we sit, is our call of Pentecost. It's the faithful call of the early church. It means embracing fully our diversity of cultures and origins, about learning about the things that make us distinct and honoring those differences, giving them dignity, as Rabbi Sachs would say, while also focusing on the power of the Holy Spirit to make us one, one people, one humanity, one church. There's a book that we have started looking at on staff and in leadership called The Pentecost Paradigm. It comes out of Middle Collegiate Church in the East Village of New York, Ten Strategies to Becoming a Multiracial Church. And they say there in that book that the church was born, as we just heard, in a cacophony of racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity, and it's our call to model that here. We also hear in the letter to the Galatians that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one together. We are all Abraham's seed, or I would say all God's children, and heirs according to the promise. There is unity and diversity together. Now, in the coming year, some of us are going to be reading this book, and you'll hear in a few minutes how we're going to read some other books from our adult deepening team. But I want to invite us to lean into this curiosity and this wholeness together. As we go down to the all-parish meeting, there are several paradigms or several vectors I'm noticing, several adaptive challenges that we're in, and this is one of them. As Rabbi Sachs says, the test of faith is whether I can make space for difference. Can I recognize God's image in someone who is not in my image, whose language or faith or ideals, and I would add gender, are different from mine? If I cannot then I have made God in my image, instead of allowing God to remake me in his image, Rabbi Sack's grown Now, as we think about Thanksgiving, as we go to our Thanksgiving table, as we welcome the wider community in our doors downstairs on Thursday afternoon, I believe that we have to own up to this charge in our church as we go to our own tables We remember that the first Thanksgiving feast was, in fact, multicultural and interfaith. It started out relatively harmonious before things got bad. And as many of us go to our own Thanksgiving tables, we will see all the ways that people around those tables do or do not embrace difference. But you and I, I believe, wherever we go, not only in this church, but all around, are prepared, are called to lean in, as the prophet Uel was quoted That God may pour out her spirit, that our young folks will see visions, that our old folks will dream dreams. And everyone who calls upon, who comes to God's table, who comes inside God's doors, will find comfort and salvation. This is your call and mine, and God invites us into it with great abandon, great comfort, and great intention. Amen.